Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I want to know who put the triple in the quadratricale? Who put the ram in the ramalama ding dong? Who put the bump in the bump de bump but um? I think I've made my point. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I'm take a beat. Okay. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm not saying that I relax with technical journals, but I'm not not saying that either. And we are together, Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of politics, international relations, cultural Marxism, and critical race theory, Dan. <laughs> we got all of them. Here. We got your Marxism. We got your critical race theory. I just, we got your Gramscianism. I just want to point out, like, people have been going and doing the homework of asking these lawmakers, what is critical race theory? And just, hey, folks, look up these stories. They are golden <laughs> yes welcome to all our patrons so what we're doing after this includes a cannon fodder episode uh, involving frank herbert's dune because we're going to get ready for the release of that movie come december there will be multiple mcu episodes because of the bounty of mcu content that is about <laughs> to come out we're less sure what we're going to be doing after that but of course we are always taking suggestions and we are about to record perhaps tomorrow Right. I don't know. Uh, not tomorrow your time. Tomorrow our time. By the time this comes out, you should have in your hot little hands, if you're a patron, our 28 Days Later episode, which is for patrons only. We did it to celebrate hitting 100. We're now looking to hit 250 as our next marker, and we'll do another patrons only episode then. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash space the nation. Uh, and we understand not everyone can join up and give us, you know, the hard cash. Just spread the word. We would appreciate mm-hmm. that as well. Rate and review. Click tell the like friends, button. Tell I'm- your neighbors. Tell your followers. You know, just, just let them know. So, Dan, today we are doing actually a unusual episode because we are talking about two different episodes from two different series with one important thing in common. Dan, you want to tell them what we're doing today? We are dipping into the Star Trek universe for the first time. We are doing, from the original series, the episode The Trouble with Tribbles, and from DS9, uh, Deep Space Nine, we are doing Trials and Tribulations. So it's a Tribble-themed episode today. We are doing this for a couple of reasons. The first is, for longtime listeners, you might be aware that we've been discussing some pretty heavy shit this past few episodes, okay? You know, we've been talking about the end of mankind as we know it. We've been talking about slavery. We've been talking about... <laughs> Some deep stuff, and we kind of want to tack a little back toward sci-fi humor in the interest of making this a hot sci-fi summer. (laughs) Um, And there is a lot of humor in both of these Star Trek episodes. Indeed, you could argue these are possibly two of, like, if you're going to, like, rank in terms of top ten funniest Star Trek episodes across the entire canon, these two would probably be in there. Also, it's Star Trek. We've been doing this now, Space the Nation, for at least half a year and have not talked about Star Trek yet. What the fuck is wrong with us? And I apologize. (laughs) I think I I can say we've avoided, I think, Star Wars and Star Trek so far, mostly because, you know... People talk about them a lot. Yeah, exactly. I I figure we don't have a ton to add to that discourse. But here, we figured out a way to add to the discourse. Yes, I agree. If we can uh, figure out a way to add to the Star Wars discourse, I think we should. But I have some thoughts the, on that. Which oh, we'll, all right. Well, we'll, we'll future episode, yeah. AMA, something. Yeah. Go on. Uh, There's these, another reason. There is <laughs> another reason. <laughs> and this was due to technical difficulties, which is we had been talking for a long time about doing a Schlocker Awe episode of the Fantasy Island pilot. 
but that was before we discovered it literally cannot be accessed in the United States. I actually found a YouTube posting of the original pilot. I watched the first half of it. I have no idea how it ends because when I revisited it, it had already been blocked for copyright reasons. It is not available on any of the streaming services, from what I could tell. If our patrons know some magical way of getting to it, let us know. But it occurred to me that even if we could get to it, there was no point in talking about it if you, our patrons and our listeners, cannot get to it. That seems sort of silly. So like, if you have to order a DVD from Germany, yeah. I, I think we probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> Although I would like to hear Tattoo say the plane in Germany. The plane is! That's airplane! And I just wanted to add uh, on the hot sci-fi summer point, everybody listening to this knows that it's been rough. It's been a rough time for me, for everyone. But I've been going through some complications, let's say, including moving, you know, across the country. And I have to say that when I sat down to watch this, when the sounds of the Star Trek theme came up, (laughs) I like felt myself like physically relax. Oh, you know, like unwind just a little bit because i think for any true nerd right Mm -hmm. star trek is comfort food yes and i just had that warm feeling inside and this was an unusually funny episode i'm not sure how many episodes are intentionally funny (laughs) not that many we'll we'll get to that but like this 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 was clearly intentionally meant to be funny this is not a like laugh at william shatner's overacting this was intentionally meant to be funny and Dear God, it delivered. That was like, yeah. it's been a while since I watched this episode. And, you know, particularly the Trouble with Tribbles and was, was in legitimate awe of it. All right. Now, Dan, story behind the story, please. Happy to provide. The story behind the story with the Trouble with Tribbles is that it was actually a first-time script by David Gerald, encouraged by Trek producer uh, Gene L. Kuhn, who was, if you... For those of us who've listened, the, the same guy who also uh, encouraged Battlestar Galactica creator Glenn A. Larson. Trek producers were initially wary because there really had only been one other even quasi-comedic episode of the show up till that point, And that was a piece of the action, for those of you who know. That was the show where they beam down and there's like a gangster-like planet. But this one was clearly intentionally uh, intended to be comedy. But they also liked the script. They thought it was better than what they had. This was also one of Nichelle Nicole's favorite episodes because it got Uhura off the bridge. And she actually has a... This might be like one of the episodes with the most amount of screen time for her. And she is all over the place. So it's understandable why she enjoyed it. The Deep Space Nine episode, which came out in 1996, was timed to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the origins of Star Trek in 1966. The DS9 folks originally didn't think they would participate because at that point there were multiple Trek franchises, in particular Star Trek Voyager. They had already planned an episode to sort of honor the 30th anniversary. And a lot of the sort of DS9 sort of producers and crew thought of themselves as sort of the forgotten middle child of the Star Trek universe. <laughs> it, to be fair, in part because while Next Generation and Voyager both were on ships, DS9 was on a space station. And there were a lot of complaints that like people thought of it as the sort of bus station in space aspect to I, it. I just have to note, I find that hilarious. Like, yeah. I mean, it's such a it's such a weird, like, imposter syndrome thing. Like, right. <laughs> I didn't know a whole show could have imposter syndrome, but... <laughs> It's also weird because I think I think among Trekkers and they're obviously it's, it's considered kinds really of Trekkers, yeah it's considered the to be DS9 one of the best. Trekkers yeah. are like the most hardcore they are convinced that is without far and away like the best show of the lot and I think you know these these are fun debates to have but the point is is that DS9 has its its devoted uh, following and had its issues apparently but anyway <laughs> yes anyway. 
so in the end, uh, the folks who pitched it were uh, Rene uh, Echevarria and Ronald Moore, who is also the creator of Battlestar Galactica and For All Mankind. The producers Rick Berman and Michael Piller were initially wary that this could work because the the episode hinged on the ability to digitally insert characters from Deep Space Nine into the video of The Trouble with Tribbles. And they didn't go along with it until they saw test footage of The Trouble with Tribbles with extras inserted into the old footage, and they honestly couldn't tell the difference. And then they realized, okay, this could actually work. And it should also be noted that David Gerald, who was the screenwriter for The Trouble with Tribbles, actually appears as an extra in the Deep Space Nine show, in essence, to sort of get his permission in order to be able to sort of revisit that old episode. So the plot is broken up into the the original episode, and then we will talk about the, the Deep Space Nine episode. So, Act 1, it's not easy being Kirk. The Enterprise is responding to a Code 1 emergency distress call from Space Station K-7, which is located in a part of space claimed by both the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Sounds pretty serious, except when they arrive, there is no emergency. Kirk finds out that one Niels Barris, a Federation Undersecretary for Agricultural Affairs in that quadrant, ordered it. He is overseeing a shipment of a new grain, Quadro Triticale, to develop Sherman's planet. He wants the Enterprise to guard the grain storage. Kirk is irked, but postcards and also grant shore leave to the crew of the Enterprise. While on the station, Lieutenant Uhura buys a Tribble, a small, soft, purring ball of fur, from a dealer named Cyrano Jones. The Tribble is cute. Even Spock likes them. They do not react well to Klingons, however. A Klingon warship arrives and invokes shore leave rights. Another headache for Kirk. He has to grant them, however, according to interstellar law. In the bar, the Klingon second-in-command insults Kirk and then the Enterprise, and Scotty cannot take it anymore. Bar fight. (laughs) Kirk is mildly disappointed that Scotty started the fight because of the dig on the Enterprise rather than the insults directed toward him. Anna, there is a lot of physical comedy in this episode, um, and most of it, in my opinion at least, is really damn good. Chekhov punching the Klingon to absolutely no effect. Cyrano uh, Jones trying to steal a drink and then having it stolen by the bartender at the last minute. Did you laugh? I laughed, Dan. I laughed. (laughs) It's really hard for me to think of another episode that even attempts physical humor. You know? Like, there's not a lot of slapstick yeah. in the original Star Trek or in the other Star Treks. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the only other example I can think of from the original series was also scripted by David Gerald, as a result, he, which he was asked to do because of the Trouble with Trouble script, which was um, I, Mud. It was the second Mud script. Oh, yeah. The, one the Mud the ones are pretty good, yeah. too. The Mud yeah. ones are good. And yeah. also, I actually should have asked this in the story behind the story. The guy that pay- plays the Klingon captain? Yeah, yeah, Koloff. Koloff, is he also the guy who's the the child Tremaine. who traps Tr- Tremaine? Yeah, Tremaine. He's, yeah. Both, so both the actor that plays the Klingon commander and the Klingon second in command had appeared in other Star Trek episodes. The Klingon commander, Koloff, I, I apologize, I don't remember the actor's name. He actually appears in Koloff in a later Deep Space Nine episode, but he also appeared in the original series as Trelane, the sort of child who also had godlike powers um, that's actually one of my favorite episodes yeah it's a really good one. it's a has, surprise twist yeah you know he has fun with it that's for sure that actor yes. is having a blast like and the guy who plays the first sort of first officer the one who starts the bar fight also was in a star trek episode i believe it was the last one of the first season the lazarus effect or something he's the guy who like is like has an alternative passageway to another dimension and so like you, there's two of them that you see at different times there we go more yeah. story than we even really needed. 
but <laughs> I appreciate it, Dan. That's that's I want to put all of that knowledge in your head to use. So that is one of the reasons why we do this show. It's because otherwise your brain would just be this lint roller of like sticky things and hair and <laughs> Greek. You know what I'm going to is like. And- <laughs> Also, 20 years from now, I'm going to listen to these episodes and like, you know, because I'll have forgotten almost everything. And I'm like, oh, wow, I remembered this stuff. That is fantastic. That is good to know. All right. I think we should move on to act two. Act two, no tribble at all. So Kirk complains to Starfleet Command about Barris bossing him around, but is basically told that Sherman's planet is important and therefore he has to listen to Barris. Meanwhile, the Tribbles are breeding exponentially and are soon all over the ship, including in the food replicators. Bach and Kirk realize that since the Tribbles are also on the station, they probably could have gotten to the grain storage compartments through the air ducts. They beam down, Kirk opens the storage locker, and the greatest physical bit of comedy in the entire Star Trek universe ensues when he is literally buried in Tribbles. Barris is all set to chew out Kirk when Spock realizes that most of the Tribbles in the grain locker are dead. This is weird. Kirk and Spock interrogate Cyrano Jones, who denies any subterfuge whatsoever. Kirk is about to interrogate the Klingons when the Tribbles react badly to Barris's assistant, Mr. Darvin. McCoy runs his old tricorder, and whoa, it turns out Darvin's a Klingon in disguise. Faced with an angry Tribble, Darvin admits that he's a spy who poisoned the grain. Kirk orders the Klingon ship to leave in 12 hours. The Federation is able to divert another grain shipment to... Sherman's planet, suggesting that they'll win the development race for Sherman's planet. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is triple free, which confuses Kirk, but he's pleased, and asks what happened. Scotty and Spock manage to beam all the Tribbles into the Klingon engine room just before they go to warp. This has to be a violation of some treaty banning biological weapons, you know, in the quadrant. I'm just going to go with that. Anna, one of the more enjoyable themes in this episode was seeing Kirk just totally annoyed and beleaguered, which was a legit contrast with most of the other episodes where he's obviously the captain of the ship and is respected by everyone. What say you? Dan, I believe you know there's a a very contentious debate in the scientific community uh, over whether or not William Shatner was uh, in on the joke, uh, as they say. (laughs) And I think this episode maybe settles that debate. I believe he proves himself to be in on the joke. I think some of the best comedy in the whole show are his reaction shots yes you know and and And, and they're not over like a lot of people think of william shatner as a hammy actor but like these aren't hammy reactions they are like he's actually the straight guy yeah he's like he he plays the straight guy most for most of the jokes including that bit with scotty where scotty has to tell him like why (laughs) he actually started the fight it's it's actually fairly subtle i don't i mean yeah oh just fun trivia fact also which is apparently david gerald was convinced that Shatner would not agree to the the scene where he's buried with Tribble. <laughs> that like he thought that like the, you know, Shatner would like take himself seriously as an actor and like he wouldn't do it. And apparently, uh, to confirm your hypothesis, Shatner was totally game. He liked the idea of exercising his comedic chops. So like totally consistent with that theory. I also just think maybe this is the time to point out. I think the Tribbles are really funny because there's absolutely no effort put into like making them seem like anything but like something cut off of a costume. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> The sound effect is the only thing that is there to like tell you that it it is something besides. You do see them move uh, a little bit at times, but yeah, it's it's, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just appreciate that it's sort of like "Mm, yeah, it's it's a triple. You know, we're not gonna (laughs) not gonna tart it up too much. It's a triple. Uh, And I was also thinking, I do think this episode was probably very fun for everyone involved. 
Um, And and that's one of the reasons why it's such a classic. We talked about this um, with Galaxy Quest. I think when a crew is having a good time making a piece of art or -hmm. piece of culture, it often helps it transcend, you know, sort of its normal bounds. And I think that's definitely what what happened here. Yes. No, no, but I I will also add, like, you know, while this wasn't exactly cannon fodder, this was one of these things where, like, I hadn't watched it in what at least 10 years probably. And it was like, God, I hope this holds up. God, I hope this holds up. It held up better. Like it, it exceeded my expectations, you know, easily. Again, the fun, the, the humor was quite done. Yeah. All right. Now we got to get on to Deep Space Nine. All right, let's go to Act 3. Oh no, the Department of Temporal Investigations. So, fast forward a century, and we are on board Deep Space Nine, and the boys at the Department of Temporal Investigations are not happy with Benjamin Sisko. It seems the Defiant was transporting a Bajoran ore back from Cardassian Prime uh, to Bajor with a passenger. They were unaware that this was the Orb of Time, and that the passenger was one Mr. Darvin, the disgraced Klingon spy. Darvin uses the Orb to send the Defiant back in time and space to K-7, Space Station K-7, during the events involving the Tribbles. To hunt for Darvin, Sisko, Dax, O'Brien, Bashir, Worf, and Odo assume 23rd century appropriate garb and infiltrate the Enterprise in K-7 to find Darvin. Hijinks ensue as the DS9 crew interacts with the Enterprise crew. Among other things, Judzia totally pulls off the Starfleet miniskirt and 60s hair. The beehive hairdo really worked for her. Bashir and O'Brien do not pull off <laughs> their hair at all. And indeed, I actually kind of like liked seeing that to remind her, wow, yeah, that does not look good on them. Yeah. Odo likes Tribbles uh, and Worf recounts... <laughs> The Klingon in, genocide. The Klingon <laughs> genocide of them um, in glowing terms. Once again, confirming that in terms of just sheer comedic value, Michael Dorn as Worf. I think the funniest line in the entire Star Trek canon is when Michael Dorn uh, on Next Generation says, Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. You know, uh, in the Robin Hood <laughs> episode. And like, this just confirms that. I also want to point out just on the, on the costuming, they did the pointy sideburns for the guys. Yes. Ooh, that's, that's true. That was... <laughs> yes. Also, interestingly enough, Worf says that he cannot explain why the 23rd century Klingons don't look like him. The 23rd century Klingons kind of look like humans with, you know, like... Makeup. Makeup, yeah. There's no other way to put it. Uh, they don't look like they have any prosthetics and so on and so forth. Worf just says it's a long story and not discussed with outsiders. And I don't think we ever find out why. That is- deserves its own. It, there must be fan fiction about it. I'm sure yeah. there is, but I'm actually legitimately surprised they didn't create a separate episode to try to explain it. But I, I, let me put it this way, it, it was a classic hand-waving moment where they at least acknowledge the incongruity and then just never, never deal with it again. It is one of the first things I thought about when I started the DS9 episode, when I was like, hey, the Klingons are going to look real different. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Rana, this, this DS9 episode, I mean, at its heart, might be the purest exercise in nostalgia in the entire Star Trek canon. Dax, in particular, just waxes rhapsodic about the past. Um, did this work for you? It did. I, I really thought about Galaxy Quest a lot, obviously, like watching this. And and I think, you know, if you were going to do a night of fan service <laughs> episodes, right. or if you were going to talk about the ways that you can kind of complete the circle between fandom and creators, um, I think this is a really cool example of that. Like this show would not exist without fans. Yeah, really. 
I do love uh, Dax getting misty-eyed about mid-23rd century design. Um, <laughs> made me laugh. Uh, and then the Klingons are not wrong that Tribbles are an environmental menace. I mean, yeah, I, they have a point. You know? <laughs> so I, I, I think one of the issues, like one of the problems occasionally when you have like a show like this delve into humor, which is the humor works. But yeah. if you do think it through, there is no denying that Tribbles should in fact be mostly like You could make a horror episode yes. just as good about Tribbles. And that is where I mentioned again, Elizabeth Colbert's Under a White Sky, which ta- has, a, has a lot in it about invasive species and invasive species that often are introduced for good reasons. Yeah. They might be cute. They might seem to serve some purpose, but invasive species are invasive species. And I actually think there is a Star Trek Discovery short that actually does the horror version of the Tribble thing. um, In which the Tribbles multiply so much that literally like a ship explodes. So in other words, it sort of takes the the, the fear that you see in the original Enterprise episode and carries it to its logical conclusion. And it's like humor horror combination. So, yeah. I did want to point out that Dax is noticeably skinnier than all of the other women in the 60s version of, or I should say the 23rd century version <laughs> of Star go. Trek. Yes, yes. Which, I, you know, just sort of interesting. It made me think about how the 60s version of Star Trek objectified women more, but there was more room for different kinds of bodies. Whereas mm. here in the 20th century, yeah, you get to wear a full outfit, um, but you got to be really, 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 really skinny. Anyway, I- that's that's just... I don't know. That's for the people that thought I wasn't enough of a feminist when I didn't like the power. So. <laughs> well, I will say I, I, I'm pretty sure I've I've seen enough things to know that actually both the men and the women in these sort of 90s Star Trek episodes complained about the uniforms because the next generation crew complained that those sort of, you know, lycra uniforms basically were completely unforgiving. And so as a result... They uh, had to watch their figures again, both the men and the women. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Jerry Ryan, as seven of nine in uh, in Star Trek Voyager, had to wear a cat suit that, re- like, was if possible even more unforgiving um, and more revealing. You can be, yes. you can, you can objectify people without showing skin. <laughs> and boy, did they succeed with that when it came to Jerry Ryan. Yes, that is true. fair enough. Okay, let us move to the final act. No statue for Darwin. During the bar fight on K7, Odo sees their sentries Darwin sneaking around in the back, and they manage to recapture him. O'Brien and Bashir are taken back to the Enterprise and disciplined along with Scotty and Chekhov. Again, there was some brilliant digital insertion of them into the original scene, and it really does look quite good. Darwin confesses that he put a bomb in a Tribble designed <laughs> to take out Tucker. Okay, just what, it, again... Not yeah. worth it to delve too far into, like, mechanics of this mm-hmm. particular episode. But I kept thinking, like, they're really small. Like, <laughs> I guess there must be technology that you could have a bomb be really small, but yeah, still blow up an entire t- space station, I guess. But it didn't but anyway, have to take out the space station. It it's just, another hand-wavy thing. He put a bomb in a tribble, you know? <laughs> it's an armed tribble, okay? But I, but I would argue, I don't think, in fairness, I don't think Darwin was trying to destroy the space station. I think he was just trying to take out Kirk. So no, but I disagree. I oh, think he was okay. trying to do, I think he was trying to take out maybe the Enterprise because they'd search for the tribble everywhere. But that's because they didn't know where the tribble was. Darwin didn't Right, right, right. But, oh, but Darwin, but how did Darwin know that? I guess he did know. Oh, sorry, no, you Darwin are correct. Knew Darwin knew where Kirk would be would and be, where to he, put the trivel. Exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. 
So it only had to be a small explosive exactly. and a small triple. Yeah, guess. so he was all a right. spy, and yeah, he wanted to kill someone, but you know, he's not a genocidal maniac, is all okay. I'm saying, all right. as opposed to warfare. Unlike the Klingons. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and their approach to triples, although again, the correct approach. So they are looking for the bomb. But after searching the Enterprise, Cisco realizes that so long as they follow Kirk, they will figure out where Darwin had planted the bomb. When Kirk and Spock beam over to K7 to inspect the stored grain, Cisco and Dax beam to the storage locker itself and find the triple bomb. The Defiant beams it into space where it explodes harmlessly. Meanwhile, Jadzia and Cisco just occasionally throw tribbles that hit Kirk's head. Everything, everyone... Which, by the way, is a is is like a retcon for yes. something that's a little bit mysterious in the original episode, which is something that you might wonder if you're closely watching. How come triples keep falling? Exactly. Wouldn't all the triples that were going to fall fall? No, yeah. triples are getting tossed out. There. So I have to say a nice bit of retconning over something truly minor, and yet yeah. you know, art, this satisfying. is how art is created. Yes, exactly. Very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone returns to the Defiant, but not before Cisco takes the opportunity to interact with Kirk on the Enterprise bridge, because come on, who wouldn't do that in that circumstances? Even one of the Department of Temporal Investigation boys acknowledges he would have done the exact same thing. So the investigators leave pretty satisfied with Cisco's explanation, also without detecting the triple infestation brewing in the promenade. Ha ha ha. So, Anna. Compared to the MCU's Temporal Variant Authority, which many of us are now watching on Loki, it seems like the Federation's Department of Temporal Investigations is much less fun. For one thing, they have no powers other than filing reports. I thought about this a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps an unusual amount. Perhaps because I am watching Loki. I was going to bring it up later, but it is funny to see in both episodes how poorly bureaucrats are treated. You know, like they are really just no one likes a bureaucrat. They're functionaries. They're like just there to enforce the rules. They're officious. When really, I actually think we will agree that bureaucrats are really important. (laughs) They are. Yeah. Yeah. And people keeping track of this shit. Like, I actually think that, yes, they only file. I'm I'm sorry. I'm doing like a defense of the. (laughs) <laughs> you are defending the deep state, Anna, and don't I think I'm not going to forget this. I am defending the deep state. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I guess I am. But I just think it's interesting, like, that there is that theme, like, in the 30 years difference, we we still have this, like, I think pretty American, you know, like, distaste for people that are going to enforce the rules. Yes. So, um, anyway. We'll I would have, you know what? Like, it would have been better. This occurs to me. They should have done this on the DS9. They should have specified that Sherman's planet wound up belonging to the Federation. Because yeah. of this. then that would have actually proved that Niels Barris actually had done his job. That as officious as he was, he really, to be fair, was trying to you know make sure that they developed the planet properly so the Federation could win and, it. Under and the he terms was of the correct in calling the Enterprise. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, okay, this this well maybe this not actually, a, maybe not a one. Maybe it yeah. shouldn't have been a one. Yeah. But like, it's an important thing. Like, I guess we, we might talk about this. We when I think we we're talk about, about yeah. yeah, Dan, Anna. Is there IR in these episodes? Does a Betazoid sense emotions, Anna? <laughs> Does a Ferengi seek profit? <laughs> of course there is IR in these episodes. Um, and these are rare episodes in Star Trek because in some ways what it's about is civil-military relations. So I'm just going to point out that like, there's a mantra in these shows that Starfleet is not military, it's just interested in exploration. And as an international relations scholar, I'm just going to point out that's total bullshit. Okay, these are warships. They come to the defense of the Federation when they are attacked. We all need to acknowledge that fact. That doesn't mean they're therefore automatically like 
you know, bloodthirsty imperialist. But yeah, Starfleet is also a military organization in addition to everything else. And yet The Trouble with Tribbles is a show about economic development. It's a show about, like, how is the Federation going to actually improve, you know, the lives of its citizens? And Kirk is clearly frustrated throughout the entire episode at having to deal with a civilian authority. He barely complies with the orders that that Barris, who legally has the authority to do this, tells him to do. He says, protect the grain. He only posts two guards. He does the bare minimum. Now, to be fair to Kirk, Kirk has legitimate beef. All right, because Barris exposes the lie that it is always the military that is the hawkish foreign policy actor. There is an, you know, there's another trope very often in a lot of uh, fiction in particular where, you know, you see civilian policymakers and military policymakers debate and it's always the military policymakers that are the ones who are gung-ho, that are the ones to want to use force, that are the ones who want to bomb some actor back to the stone age. As it turns out, very often in real life and in this episode, it's actually the civilian that's the more hawkish actor. It's Barris who uses the code one emergency distress call when clearly that was not actually required. Well, some sort of distress call probably was required. Some but, sort okay. of, yes. It was perfectly fine to request the Enterprise. I'm not saying that Barris was wrong about that, but All a right. code one emergency distress call, I mean, you know, that is like, you know, the Klingon yes. crying wolf, okay. as it were. Yeah. It's Barris who wants Kirk to violate interstellar law and deny the Klingons uh, shore leave rights. And it is Barris who makes wild, you know, almost McCarthyite accusations um, <laughs> about Cyrano Jones with incredibly flimsy evidence. Admittedly, that's probably Darwin trying to throw everyone off the scent, but still. There is also some, you know, interesting discussion, at least in, in the episodes about uh, international, well, actually interstellar law. In the opening of the Tribbles episode, in particular about how the Klingons and the, uh, the Federation will actually claim, you know, rights to Sherman's planet. Um, so among other things, Spock says that the Federation has the stronger claim because they discovered the planet first, which is consistent with, by the way, how discovering and mapping has worked uh, in Earth's history uh, in terms of claiming. And also potentially the ability to develop. And usually you have to actually put people on, you know, a piece of land in order to demonstrate that you actually can do it. I will just point out that all civil authority is ultimately, you know, enforced at the point of a gun. Um, That is Maoist of you. (laughs) (laughs) It is true, however. And I also think that's a really good point about civilians being the more hawkish uh, often. In fact, our own history, yeah. <laughs> I think particularly the Iraq War, shows that that, is, that, can, that can be the case, often to devastating result. Now, I, I do have some questions that I believe are IR-related. Okay. The first one being, invoking shore leave rights, Dan? Is there... Am I missing... I, perhaps you know the law of the sea better than I do. <laughs> In fact, I have no doubt you know the law of the sea better than I do. Um, But I am curious about the idea of interstellar shore leave rights. So two things. Where do you see this working into the international relations? So shore leave rights are not in the law of the sea. That I do. (laughs) Are not in the law of the sea treaty. So you're, you're right to question that. In terms of shore leave rights, I assume what the the Klingons were doing was referencing, and they they talk about this, the Organian Peace Treaty. And this actually references a previous episode of Star Trek in which, uh, actually, the actor John Calicos, who played Baltar in Battlestar Galactica, appears in that episode as a Klingon. And it's an episode in which the Klingons and the, the Federation under Kirk are, like, trying to claim some planet that seems to be like incredibly primitive and it turns out that the aliens there are incredibly powerful and they find the whole idea of territory just silly and so they they sort of require that the two 
sides have to forge a peace. So I'm assuming that the Organian Peace Treaty probably included something like shore leave rights within K7 itself and is not some sort of, you know, generalizable invocation. I thought that that would be amazing if like somehow in the future in the post-scarcity society, something that you could do was <laughs> claim your leisure. I do like the idea <laughs> that in the 23rd century you have you do you no longer have to fight for your right to party because it was given to you. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. <laughs> the right to party has been won, Dan. <laughs> it just shows how the future is actually. It's consistent with the Star Trek theme of the future being, you know, uh, a Whiggish sort of, you know, everyday. Hey, hey Dan, speaking better. of labor rights. Yes, Anna. Yes, Dan. Did you find a way to use your graduate school education in literary <laughs> criticism to discuss these episodes? Dan. I am I am very very glad to report that that, <laughs> that you know forty or sixty thousand dollars did not go to waste. <laughs> Kids, a, go to graduate school. Clearly, this is the lesson from this. I have a couple of theories, both of which are correct. <laughs> you know, I think actually, in terms of like critical theory, really have to think about the first episode as the primary text. The whole episode, the trouble with triples is about the commodification of leisure in a post-scarcity society, with the implication that the ruling class will always find a way to extract labor from workers <laughs> to keep them from gaining power by turning leisure itself into work with the threat that too much leisure leads itself to scarcity. What do you think, Dan? Did you I'm... follow that? If you didn't, I think I've won. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I've... I've... No, I'm not entirely sure I buy this. So, so wait, how does... I, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm sort of... I'm okay. not entirely serious. I do okay. think there's really interesting stuff here about the commodification of leisure and how do we mark leisure in a post-scarcity society. Like, how do you create leisure where no one has to work? Like, supposedly, this is a, a, a society in which labor is optional. There are no wages. There's no money. Yeah, so, that's What bullshit. does leisure mean? I'm sorry. So this is where my own graduate school education has to point out something incredibly politically incorrect, which is Gene Roddenberry's dictum that there is no money in the Star Trek universe is just bullshit. There is no other way to deal with That's that. That's not politically incorrect. You're just violating the boundaries of the universe that we've created here. Like, you're I, just not... You're going outside canon, Dan. I don't think I am going outside canon. I think the problem is the rule is so <laughs> absurd that not even the canon can, like, conform to it. Because as... So you you, you will have to link to this in the... In the Patreon page. But as you pointed out, there there's, you know, an argument that, that it's a post-scarcity uh, economy. And... The, the problem with that is, is that we know, first of all, the Federation constantly signs trade and commercial treaties with everyone, which implies that, you know, there's still mutual exchange going on. There are currencies. We hear about Federation credits. We hear in the DS9 universe about gold press latinum. Yes, we get the occasional hand wavy thing of like, there's no money here. You know, there's no money in the Federation. Um, I actually think there's no money in Starfleet. There's a slight difference there. I also want to point out that no matter what, you know, I can make out of the text yes. uh, the text itself was created in a capitalist society <laughs> and so references to capitalism like bleed through yeah and so there are multiple references to like eking out a living right and needing a job like when when Cyrano gets the punishment of having to clear the triples out of the station for what is it seven years 17 Some, years I 17 believe. years which is 
I think an unfair sentence. That actually, no, that would be, that would, again, this was another example of the episode you know? being legitimately funny, but if you think about it, very cruel. In which case, yeah. yeah, 17 years of doing that doesn't make any sense. It's like, And you I know. believe Kirk refers to that as job security. Yes, which, he does. you know, if, in, if within the universe of Star Trek, it doesn't make any sense at all. You wouldn't even have like the words job security, right. I don't think. But again, the episode itself was created by people living in a capitalist society, so it bleeds yeah. through. The other thing I have to say... <laughs> which is also correct, is the Tribbles themselves <laughs> represent the rentier class, parasites on society that contribute nothing except the dulling of the senses, a pacifier to ensure that class structure stays in place. As Spock says, quoting the Bible, they toil not, nor do they spin. Anna, I am a big fan of this part of it. This theory is correct. I like this. That is a good metaphor. The, the, Thank you. You you got your graduate education. All right, is what I'm cool. Saying. Yeah, the first one is kind of riffing, you know? Yeah, like, okay. it was a little bit of a risk there, but I was pretty sure about the, the other one. And I just one other point, and uh, it's the nerd that I am. I actually was Googling about this as I was watching the episode. Uh, what would Thorsten Veblen make of this? <laughs> this this use of leisure or lack of use of leisure? Where does leisure fit in this society? And I didn't Listeners, really get very... You should spend like at least once a day, you should ask yourself what would Thorsten <laughs> What would Veblen <laughs> make of this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it did remind me of something that had entertained me when I was in graduate school, which is the idea of a Veblen good, mm-hmm. which is a luxury product that does not obey the laws of supply and demand. And I believe that Tribbles would fit into that. Sort of no, no, because it's the cost thing. They have to be. It has to be a luxury good, right? right. So and they're not a luxury good, right? So a Veblen good. The idea of a Veblen good and is that it's a good in which demand increases as the price right, goes right, up. Right, right. See, I should have googled more. And so the problem is, is that in some ways, it's like tri- diamonds and Rolls Royces. Right, exactly. It's the Chivas Regal argument that um, back in the seventies, Chivas Regal did a marketing study of like how can we improve, you know, our brand and the marketing. People came back saying, one, use a slightly fancier bottle, and two, raise your price by like two bucks. And it worked. Suddenly, Chivas Regal was viewed as a more luxury good. So yes, that's fair. And the diamonds example is the completely like weird made up, you have to spend two months salary on a diamond for an engagement ring. That's just something the diamond industry decided. (laughs) It's the beers. So I I, I don't know if you know this, Anna. When I teach global political economy, I always ask my students when when I talk about multinational corporations as an actor, who do you think was the most powerful multinational corporation in world history? And some people always answer like the East, the British East India Company. And I'm like, yeah, that's close. But like, you know, they're sort of a state chartered trading company. It's a little weird. Then people will say Google or so on and so forth. And I always answer De Beers because De Beers for a century manipulated the price of diamonds because they were the monopoly supplier and were like so powerful. They actually invented the engagement diamond. That was a thing that De Beers invented. That is power, Dan. Yeah. And I'm going to we're going to leave this whole discussion in because we're going to use my mistaken memory of a Veblen good to educate (laughs) the rest of our our audience on the proper use of that term. We challenge you to work it into conversation at some point. Uh, uh, Please let us know in -hmm. the comments. (laughs) How did you work Veblen good in the conversation? (laughs) As this hot sci-fi summer ensues, I want all of you to try to figure out how to. We're going to have some challenges. We're going to we're going to issue some challenges. I like this. Yes. Yes. This is our non-fungible. This is our NFT. The non-fungible yes. token is, you know, you all have to like figure out, which is the example of, a, by the way, a classic Veblen good, I think. Yes, you know, that's like, right. You know, like all try to figure out a way to use Veblen good in a conversation. Okay. So, Dan, do you hear that? I do hear something. Dan, I think that that, that bomb that exploded outside K7. <laughs> yes. 
We've hit a debris field, Dan. Oh, no. I can't believe it. What do you have to say about these episodes that we haven't already said so far? Okay, a few things. First of all, on the original episode, I have to point out there are truly wild variations in how the different actors pronounce the word Klingon. So, like, you hear, like, I've always thought of it as Klingon, but, like, within the episode, I also hear people saying Klingon. Like, kind of like the way Marlon Brando <laughs> says the planet Krypton in Superman, which I love because, like, apparently he just kept mispronouncing it and no one was going to tell him differently because he's Marlon fucking Brando. But, like, the point is, like, even within the episode, they kept uh, using the word slightly differently, which was a little strange. Second, this is a small bugaboo for me about Star Trek, and I, I do apologize to, to Walter Croning for this, uh, who plays Chekhov. But if there is one thing that is wildly inaccurate in the way that Chekhov, Chekhov speaks, you know, with his Russian accent, it's that for some reason he always says the letter V as a W. And anyone who knows Russian knows that... Anyone who knows Russian knows. Anyone who knows anyone. Russian. Anyone. anyone familiar with Russian knows that's not how it works. It's the exact opposite. Russians don't have the letter W. They instead use, you know, V for W almost all the time. So, in fact, it, it should have been... And he, he always says whistle instead of vessel. A Russian would say vessel. A Russian would have Indeed, no problem saying Indeed, his name that. should be a reminder. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, on the, the DS9 episode, two small things first. The DS9 episode was very clever and sort of, you know, again, calling back to all the originals. There is a very funny riff in the very beginning about uh, in which O'Brien and, and Bashir are playing sort of a joke on Worf about talking about how well he smells, which is very funny because in the original Trouble with Turtles episode, Chekhov makes a joke about being so close to the Klingons that you can smell them. So I always thought I assumed that was a conscious callback. Um, and then finally, I don't want to get too serious about this episode because, again, it's a humorous episode, but... I think we have to acknowledge that the only way DS9 rids itself of the Tribbles is to kill them. There is no other way this works, right? I mean, unless there's Or like... put them in an environment where they will be killed. Right, Meaning, exactly. like, apparently whatever their home planet is... Has is, predators, yeah. Has lots of predators, but like, so yeah. I, unless there's a 24th century equivalent of saying, no, we sent all the Tribbles to a farm upstate, they, <laughs> they have to be killed. <laughs> well, can I point out another unpleasant thing that they don't... Uh, deal with in terms of the triples, which is yes. where does the food go that they eat? <laughs> well, I assumed into the production of more triples, but yes, the tr- but triples barely have gonna no be waste. Wa- yes. There's going to be waste product. <laughs> where, where is the triple shit, Anna? Where is, where the, triple is shit? the triple that shit? That is what I want to know. <laughs> what about you? Because that would be its own environmental hazard. I'm guessing. Yes, I would assume so. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a definite problem. When you have a, <laughs> I was about to explain some why some shit stinks more than others. <laughs> Dan, it's because if you're very efficient as extracting every, if you're if the organism is efficient about extracting, mm-hmm. like the waste is going to be more concentrated. Ooh, like, true. so I'm just going to say that triple shit would stink. That's oh, my that's God. my theory. But really, uh, a couple of the things in the debris field. First of all, I want to agree. Like the triples must be killed. Yeah. Like there must be an an assassination of triples. You know, like put them out of their misery. I don't know, but they maybe maybe they don't really have brains. Like I don't know, but they never answer the question, and that's because the answer to that question is horrific. Yes, Dan. Well, I mean, Worf that's, did answer the question in some ways. That's Worf true. says we killed them all because that was the thing to do, and you know what? Worf was right. Worf was right. Yeah. I also believe that there is a non-zero chance that someone came up with Scotty saying no triple at all before <laughs> the rest of the script was written. That is my theory. You cannot separate me from it. I will believe that until the day I die. <laughs> it was the so a lot of Star Trek episodes, particularly the original series, always end with everyone laughing on the bridge. And yes. I, this was, I think, the best best 
variant of that, I guess. Would be <laughs> All right. So we're going to close up. We are doing 28 Days Later. By the time you hear this, it mm-hmm. should be out. Mm-hmm. We do have an MCU bonanza coming because MCU, they, it's a... I mean, talk about hot sci-fi summer. Yeah. MCU provides. Yes. <laughs> uh, among other things, we'll be doing Black Widow and Loki. Mm-hmm. We are continuing to look for stuff that's fun. I think that we've all had enough darkness for a while. And while I am dedicated to keeping this podcast at least a little gloomy, um, we've had a lot of gloom in our lives and in the country. And let's let's celebrate. Let's yes. celebrate vaccination. Mm-hmm. Let's look for some utopian sci-fi. Yeah. And I also feel like it'll be a good challenge. <laughs> <laughs> we might wind up having to do more Star Trek, actually. If that's the the outcome, I'm not opposed to that. Yeah. And there are other things we can do. Buckaroo Bonsai, that certainly would be, would that's be right. good. That's right. Yeah. If you are enjoying Hot Sci-Fi Summer, you can support <laughs> us at Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Space the Nation. And again, if you can't do that, just spread the word. We appreciate it. Tweet. Like. I don't think you can like this. Maybe you can. But, you know, whatever. Subscribe. Rate us, rate us highly. Rate and review. You know, yes. Dan, and could you talk about some of the benefits of becoming a patron? Sure. So first of all, besides you, that warm glow inside, you can become a patron for as little as three dollars a month, and you know, presumably, hopefully, those who are listening can potentially afford that. Uh, it comes with all sorts of benefits, including patrons-only episodes. There is swag for the slightly higher levels per month, um, and there is also a fantastic Discord channel that is really genuinely taken on a life of its own. We mean that in a good way, and not in a bad Reddity kind of way, or in a Frankensteinian kind of way. Either. Right. Exactly. Um, so uh, it has not become self-aware. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although it has become self-aware, but in an ironic way, not in right. a not in a you know Skynet kind of way. Right. Um, you can also listen uh, and hear our AMAs, which we do uh, the first Saturday of every month, and we are going to be vigilant at remembering that it's the first Saturday of every month after our slights grew up last time. Thanks to Karen, our sound engineer, for making all of this sound so much better than when we actually say it out loud. <laughs> I, I, I've listened to a couple of episodes. I'm like, boy, I don't um at all. I'm getting really good. And then I realize, no, that's not you, Dan. That's Karen. Um, so, Karen, uh, your efforts are much appreciated. We thank Karen's dog slash assistant, Alwyn. And, of course, we thank all of the patrons uh, for listening and hopefully proselytizing this podcast to others. I would like to offer a final round of apologies uh, for missing our AMA. And also, I completely blanked on posting the podcast itself last week. So <laughs> it's just been it's been a lot, Dan. It's I just been sure. a lot. OK. Also, I need to teach you how to post the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this episode will be posted on time. God damn it. If it's the last thing I do. Before it's not being the last buried thing by I tribbles, do. yes. That's right. But until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.